Morning. My name is Lexi Condry. I am a part of the Houses community group. Um, this morning, I am going to be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. It says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord is said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand and I, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. That uh, introduction, thank you, uh, band, uh, for leading us in that time of worship. It was an honor to get to sing with you guys this morning and get to worship the Lord with you. Uh, Tanner stole like almost everything I was going to say in my introduction. He already introduced me, introduced my family. Uh, he, he told you all about what we're doing. Um, but a, a, little bit of, a little bit more background, I served as the discipleship pastor at Redeemer Midland. Uh, for about two and a half years while I was completing the church planting residency program that Redeemer offers, the Redeemer Network offers. And uh, recently I've completed that residency and stepped off of staff at Redeemer Midland because as Tanner said, Lord willing, here in about four or five weeks, um, my family will be moving to Dripping Springs, Texas to plant a multiplying gospel-centered missional church there. So we are excited about that. We covet your prayers. Thank you for praying for us, and we're grateful for your partnership and for your support. And um, yeah, it's just uh, it's, it's a bittersweet season, um, but it's an exciting season. We're very excited about it. And I'm just as equally excited to be here with you guys in Odessa this morning. We love Tanner and the whole house family, and uh, you guys are blessed to have them here in Odessa. And so thank you, Tanner, for allowing me to come preach. It's a, it's a huge honor when a pastor entrusts his pulpit to another pastor. I, I take that as a great honor. He's saying, I trust you to preach the word to my people. So uh, the people that God, who the people God has entrusted me to care for. So thank you, Tanner, for having us. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, as we heard read a minute ago. We're going to be there, Mark chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 35 through 40. I just want you to know from, from the get-go, this is an interesting, it's an interesting passage, uh, but it's very critical and crucial that each one of us understands it here today. Uh, these words are some of the last words that Jesus spoke during his public ministry. So publicly, Jesus teaches a lesson here. And he chose this lesson to teach as his last one. So if I, was going to, if I knew this was going to be my last sermon that I would ever preach before I die in public, um, I would think really hard about what passage I chose to teach on and what I chose to say. So just that alone right there, knowing that, that this is Jesus' last public, this is the last time that Jesus teaches publicly, should catch our ear and, and tell us that we need to pay attention to what he's saying here. But it's also important because Jesus asks a question here, uh, kind of in the form of a riddle, but he asks a question that if we don't get the answer to this one question right, we're going to miss everything in life. Everything that's meaningful in life, we're going to miss it if we get this question wrong. Um, and 
and more than likely, if we get this question wrong, our lives are going to be a wreck, and that's going to be seen externally in our behaviors. And that goes for religious people here in the Bible Belt. It goes for, for churchy people like us, religious people, and that goes for people in the room who may not be believers in Jesus yet. This passage, this question that Jesus asks, and this warning that he gives are crucially important for us to understand. Uh, because what Jesus does here is he asks a question that gets his listeners to think about what they truly believe about him. And that's so important because what we believe about Jesus in our hearts shapes and forms our actions and our lifestyles. So our lifestyles and our actions and the things that we do in life are directly connected and influenced by what we believe to be true about Jesus in our hearts. So that goes for every area of life. It goes for um, the things that I will do and won't do to, in order to close this sale at work. It goes for the way that I interact with my coworkers, the things I post on social media, whether or not I boycott Disney, how I vote, the way I treat my wife and my spouse. All of those things, all those external observable behaviors are directly influenced by what I believe in my heart to be true about Jesus. So let me give you an example. Um, I have decided not to boycott Disney, uh, at least for a while. Um, I believe that, uh, the, that the agenda of the executives of Disney is, is, is the exact opposite of God's design for human flourishing. I believe some of the messages that they're trying to send to our kids are anti-gospel and even demonic. But I've chosen not to boycott Disney because there's a greater belief operating in my heart and that is directly connected to the trailer for Obi-Wan. So I don't know if you guys have seen that. I'm pulling out my nerd card here. Uh, but that trailer, that show looks phenomenal. So I am, not, I am believing that God is going to forgive me through Jesus for supporting Disney for a few more months so that I can watch, have to receive the blessing of watching this show, Obi-Wan. It looks good. It looks really good. Uh, obviously, I'm kidding uh, a little bit. Um, but here's another example. So say, hypothetically, I'm just operating as a workaholic. I'm just addicted to my work. Uh, so I go, I don't have to do this, but I go in early, uh, work all day, come home late. Then when I get home, I, I eat real quick and sit on the couch and then work from home and then tuck the kids in and go to bed and go to sleep. Um, the reason that I'm doing that, if I'm doing that, is because of what I believe in my heart to be true about Jesus. That's a true story in my life and, in our, and me and my wife and our marriage um, here recently. From August to December of last year, I was operating functionally as a workaholic. I was overwhelmed with work at Redeemer Midland. I was, I was consumed with training up who was going to take my place and just working all day there, long hours there. And I was coming home, eating, sitting on the couch, and then working on Redeemer Dripping Springs from home answering emails, trying to connect with families here in Midland, having people over for dinner, inviting them to be a part of the core team, uh, staying connected with people in Dripping Springs, trying to raise funds, and just consumed with, with, with work, with Redeemer Midland work and with Redeemer Dripping Springs work. And all the while, my wife was suffering and my kids were suffering because of it. And the reason I was behaving that way is because I was believing lies in my heart about Jesus. And those lies went something like this. James, it's all on you. Like, this is all on you. I can't build my church. I need you to build my church. Like, that's a lie I was believing about Jesus. Or I was believing that Jesus thought it was more important, like Jesus was telling me it's more important for you to be a successful church planner 
than it is for you to be a faithful, godly husband and father. And I know those things are not true about Jesus. Like, I know that is not Jesus's, that is not Jesus's will for my life. That is not what he thinks of me. That's not my identity. He is going to build his church. He doesn't need me. Uh, Redeemer Midland was not going to fall apart without me, and Redeemer Dripping Springs, if it was the Lord's will, would be built without me. Um, but those lies had crept in. Those lies had crept into my heart because what we believe about Jesus, as I said, directly affects um, our lifestyle and our actions and the decisions that we make. And that's what Jesus gets at in today's passage. Our beliefs about him directly affect uh, the way that we act and the way that we live. Therefore, we need to have correct views about Jesus so that our lives will be full and abundant. I think it's interesting how Jesus gets at this issue with these religious leaders. And first, he asks a clarifying section. I mean, a clarifying question. So in the first section that we're going to look at today, he asks this clarifying question. It's, it's, it's to a crowd of people, but it's aimed at the religious leaders. Particularly, it's aimed at the scribes. And the question is simply put, like, who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? And then in the next section, he, get, he gives a warning of condemnation. So the scribes had an inaccurate, faulty, insufficient view of the Christ, and therefore their actions showed it. Their actions showed it. They, they had wrong views about the sovereign Savior, and therefore they behaved as selfish scribes. And that's, that's what I titled this sermon, is the sovereign Savior and the selfish scribes. And that's this interaction that we see take place. We see it in the form of a clarifying question and then a warning of condemnation uh, that Jesus gives. So our beliefs about Jesus directly affect our lives and our actions. So, like I said, we have a clarifying question and a warning of condemnation. But before, before we dive into that, a little bit of context of how we got to Mark chapter 12, verse 35. You guys, if you've been here, you've been walking through the gospel of Mark. But this, this whole setting really began in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, where Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem. He goes to his father's house and cleanses it. He goes to the temple and he cleanses it. And then he spends some time there teaching and answering questions. And in Mark chapter 12, we get a glimpse of this. These religious leaders, these groups of religious leaders coming up to Jesus and trying to trick him and, and ask him these, what they think are tricky questions. In, in chapter 12, verse 13 through 17, the Pharisees, a group of religious leaders, ask him about the legitimacy of paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus just crushes their question with divine wisdom um, and silences them. And then in chapter 12, verse 18 through 27, the Sadducees come with what they think is a confusing question about the resurrection and marriage, and Jesus just clearly tells them, you know nothing of the scriptures or the power of God. And then in the, the section right before this, in chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, a scribe, so you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and now a scribe is introduced. And a scribe asks him a question about which of the commandments is the greatest. Jesus again answers him with divine wisdom. And then Mark tells us this. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. But when we get into our section today, in verse 35, we see that Jesus has a question of his own for them now. Like I said, this is his last public teaching opportunity. And so he asked this clarifying question. Look at me. Look, I mean, not, don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Look at your Bible. Look with me at your Bibles. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. Let's look at this clarifying question. So as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ 
is the son of David? Question mark. How can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? Question mark. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Question mark. And the great throng heard him gladly. So there is the question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Before we, before we hone in on that and, and really break that down, I just want you to observe a couple of things about this passage of Scripture, verses 35 through 37. First, notice he says, how can the scribes say? The scribes were the most educated, uh, the most respected translators of the Old Testament Scripture um, of the three religious groups. Of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes were the ones that knew the Old Testament, that were trusted to teach it and break it down and exposit it and understand it and translate it the best. They carried the most authority when it came to handling Scripture of any of the religious leaders. So don't miss that in Jesus' last lesson that he teaches publicly, he goes after them. You know the most about Scripture. And he asks them this question. So that shows us that it's possible to have a fat head and a small heart. It's possible to have a big head full of knowledge and even a cold, dead heart. So don't miss that. Jesus addresses this to the scribes. Also, notice Jesus' view of Scripture. We see this in verse 35, when he says, the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. They had their views and their opinions about who the Christ was. But then in verse 36, he says, but David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So Jesus, and then Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage of Scripture. So Jesus here, right here, is affirming the authority of the Old Testament as the inspired word of God. David spoke and wrote in the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as the New Testament authors did. So he's saying this whole book is weighty. I'm not a fan of, of red letter. That's why I'm not a fan of red letter Bibles. Uh, if you have a red letter Bible, don't be offended. Um, but they're all red letters. They're all red letters. Every, 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 the gospel, I mean, the gospel is seen as clearly in the authority and the inspiration of the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. And Jesus here affirms that. He says, David said in the Holy Spirit. So in, in a day when authority is under attack, any kind of authority is under attack, when Christians, we as Christians are viewed as like antiquated close-minded, naive people for, for believing the Bible. Just be comforted by the fact that the only person who ever raised himself up from the dead, Jesus, had no problem affirming the authority of God's word in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And if the only one who ever came back to life from the dead affirmed, had no problem affirming the authority of the Old and New Testament, then we should have no problem doing the same. Uh, this is our authority, and we should be able to to say that uh, without shame. So also, lastly, note this, the passage that Jesus chooses to teach from in his last lesson, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most commonly quoted psalm by the New Testament authors. It's referred to in the New Testament over, over 30 times. So why? Why this psalm? Why was it quoted so much by the New Testament authors? And why did Jesus choose this psalm to go after the scribes, the most educated um, of their day? And it's because David 
in this psalm, inspired by the Spirit of God, reveals clearly the identity of the Christ. He reveals clearly the identity of the Christ. And so that's why Jesus gets at this clarifying question. The scribes say this, like, who is the Christ? Who is the Christ really? And I love that he asks it in kind of a riddle. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? That's kind of a riddle. Now, I have a few riddles uh, that are not near as clever or deep or complicated as Christ, but I'm going to give it a shot. Any kids in the room? Raise your hand, kids. See some kids over there. Hi, Maya. Got some kids. Okay, here, here's, some, here's some dad riddles for you. What is the richest of all the nuts? A cashew. You got it. Why did the citrus tree go to the hospital? To get some lemonade. These are good. This is my, this is my last one. This is my favorite. What does a nosy pepper do? It gets jalapeno business. I, I love this. Uh, so those are, those are cheesy. Those are my dad riddles. Jesus asked this question like in the form of a riddle. In the form of a riddle to catch their attention, to get them thinking. Um, and his riddle, obviously, is much more confusing. And the answer to it is much more important than the answer to any of those riddles I just gave. But Jesus uses this riddle-like question to clarify, to reveal to the scribes and to reveal to the crowd that the scribes, the most educated ones of all of them, had a faulty, insufficient view of Jesus. They believed that Jesus was the son of David, and they got that right. Jesus was the son of David. All through the Old Testament, you can see that this Christ, this Savior that's coming would be a descendant of David. He would be the son of David. You see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see it in Isaiah chapter 11. You see it in Jeremiah chapter 23. All of those clearly teach that this Savior, the coming Christ, the Messiah that we're waiting on, will be the son of David. But they believe that the son of David would be just like King David. He would just be an earthly, nationalistic, political leader who would come and free them from their oppression here on earth and restore them to places of honor and honor them, and, and that they would have all this earthly glory. They had a faulty, insufficient view of the Christ, and that's why Jesus asked the clarifying question, how can the scribes teach the Christ is David's son when David himself calls him Lord? So why is David calling his son Lord? Who calls their son Lord? I have four sons, and I've thought about calling them things, but never once have I thought about calling them Lord, ever. So why is David referring to his son as Lord? And the answer is found in Psalm 110. It teaches us that the Christ will not only be the son of David, but also David's Lord. In this verse, we see it in Psalm 110, the verse that Jesus quotes. We see it because there's two words used for Lord there. If you've got an older Bible, the first one is probably capital L-O-R-D. And then the second, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And so the first word is Yahweh. It's the name that God has chosen for himself, and that's how he identifies himself and introduces himself in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 4, when he tells Moses, I am that I am. Like, that is the name reserved for God and God alone. And then he says, God says the other, to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, which is the word Adonai, so it's like ruler or master. So 
God says to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, a footstool under your feet. So David is acknowledging that his descendant, the one that the Old Testament, his, uh, the, the one that the Old Testament talks about that will be the Christ, the coming Christ, will be his son, but will also be his Lord. So the son of David is the sovereign savior. And that's what the scribes were missing. When we look at the totality of Scripture, we see that the Christ, this Christ that we're talking about, who is the Christ? We see that it's Jesus. We see that Jesus is the son of David, is he's descendant of David. Here we see that he's, he's David's Lord as well. But then we also see that he's David's creator. In Revelations chapter 22, verse 16, it says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for these churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So if you think about a tree, Jesus saying, I'm the root, like before David the trunk ever was, and before I was ever his descendant, I was the root. Jesus is also David's creator. Before David was ever a twinkle in his father's eye, Jesus existed for eternity with God in heaven, planning out every day of every one of our lives, including the birth of King David, his great, 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 great grandfather, eventually. So Jesus, the Christ, is David's son. He's also David's Lord. He's David's creator. And we also know that the Christ is the son of God. This is how Mark begins his gospel in Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is the son of God as well. They had this faulty view, this minimalistic. They honed in on this one thing. He's the son of David. But Jesus, the Christ, is so much more. He's the son of God. He's sovereign, the sovereign king of everything who left everything, left his throne in heaven to become a human and not to become a political or a military leader to free God's people from their earthly oppression, but to be a humble servant and a savior and to establish the, king of, the kingdom of heaven in people's hearts and to free them not from their bondage to the Romans, but from their bondage to sin. And he did that by willingly offering himself to die as a sacrifice in their place. He was buried in a tomb, and he rose back to life on the third day, and then he ascended into heaven, and when he got there, he sat down at the right hand of God, just as David, in the spirit, predicted he would in Psalm 110. Now he's willing and able, he sits willing and able to forgive and give eternal life to all who trust in him. So that's who the Christ is. Who is the Christ? The clear answer, Jesus is the Christ. He's the savior of the world. He's David's son. He's David's Lord. He's David's creator. He's Lord and savior. That's what sovereign savior means. He's Lord and savior. And I think that's important for us. The same question should hit home for us in the Bible belt here today, in church in Odessa, Texas here today. Because there are some faulty views uh, that we can have about Jesus and think we're right and never know it. Uh, So let me try to expose a couple of those. We can view Jesus, like who is the Christ? We may answer that question, or we may functionally view it, believe it in our heart, that Jesus is just like an add-on. He's an addition. I've got my career. I've got my family. I've got some good friends. Um, I've kind of got this thing figured out. Um, And if it benefits me, and if Jesus doesn't really come in and shake things up a whole lot, I'll just add him onto my life. And I'll go to church every now and then, and I may serve a little bit. But really, Jesus is just an add-on in my life. 
if it's convenient for me, I'll add him on. But really, I've got this thing figured out all on my own. And this is a demonic and deadly lie. So if this is you, and you're kind of on the fence, uh, just know that the sovereign Savior is not interested in being an add-on to your life. He says anyone who wants to save his life and hang on to his things in this world and his relationships and his status and his popularity and all of these things in this world, anyone who wants to keep those things will lose it. But he says, anyone who loses everything for my sake will gain it. So Jesus is not interested in being an add-on. If that's you, repent and know that Jesus is the sovereign Savior and he wants to be everything in your life. Another faulty view that I think we have uh, that can, prov- that can uh, creep its way into churches and especially here in the Bible Belt is that Jesus is my Savior, um, but not my Lord. So we kind of have this idea of like, um, he can be one or the other. And, and, and this was me for, for, from ages 14 to 27. I wanted Jesus to save me from hell. Who wants to go to hell? Not me. So I wanted Jesus to save me from hell, but I was Lord of my own life. And I wanted, I wanted everyone to know that. Like, nobody was going to tell me what to do. I was my own sovereign. I, was, I wanted to rule and reign in my life. And, uh, and that just led to my life becoming an absolute disaster. I proved to be a terrible Lord of my own life. And thankfully, on March 14th of 2012, God opened my eyes to see that I was a terrible Lord, a terrible sovereign, and uh, that I was separated from him. And uh, he just showed me my sin and uh, showed me that I was separated from him and showed me that there's no saving you from hell without ruling and reigning in your heart. And so I asked God to save me, forgive me, bring me back to you and rule and reign in my heart, whatever that looks like. I give you my life, give you everything. And, and he did, he saved me. So if that's you, recognize this deadly demonic lie. That Jesus, if he is not your Lord, he's not your savior. And if that's you, ask him to save you and rule and reign in your heart. And he will. So who is the Christ? The clarifying question. It's vitally important that we get this right. If we miss this, we'll miss everything. And not only will we miss everything, but our lives will show it. Our actions will show it. And that's what, that's what we see in the selfish scribes. So through the clarifying question, Jesus revealed that the scribes had faulty views, only the son of David, about the Christ. And this explains why their actions revealed that they were a hypocritical selfish and sinful which brings us to the next section verses 38 through 40 which is a warning of condemnation so he asks a clarifying question and then he gives this warning of condemnation it's a stern stern warning it should catch all of our attentions and we should know right off the get-go if we have faulty views in our heart about jesus about the sovereign savior then our life will be full it will show in our life be full of hypocrisy and selfishness and sin and ultimately what we are doing is heaping up condemnation for ourselves and we need to know that so read mark chapter 12 verses 38 through 40 with me jesus says this and in his teaching he said beware of the scribes After he just addressed them, how did the scribes say this? He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses 
and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So in our first section, Jesus addresses their faulty beliefs. Uh, and in this section, he addresses their, their faulty actions that flowed from those beliefs, that were caused by those beliefs. And let's look at them briefly. Number one, they loved their appearance. They were obsessed with their appearance. The way they looked, verse 38, tells us the scribes to like to walk around in long robes. First of all, don't do that. That's weird. Don't walk around in your bathrobe. That's, that's weird. Don't do that. But in their time, they loved to walk around in these long robes because it distinguished them from everybody else. People would see a scribe in the long robe and be like, man, look how holy he is. Look how smart he is. Look how awesome he is. And we can fall into this too. We can become obsessed with our appearance and really this put on this external show of like, we want people to look at us and say, man, how awesome, how, how well-dressed is that person? How put together are they? It's, it's self-centered. It's selfishness. Second, they loved being popular. They were obsessed with people liking them. Jesus said they liked being greeted and uh, greeted by and, and, and talking with people in the marketplace. As they would do this, people would be, th- I mean, they would be thinking to themselves, look how important I am. Look how many people want to talk to me. Look how many people want to be in my presence. Like, I'm kind of a big deal, you know? And they would get, that's self-centered and selfishness. And we can fall into this too. Pastors, in ministry, we can fall into this. The temptation to want people's praise and your approval and the attaboys and like the great jobs. Like we can fall into being obsessed with, with popularity and our image, which leads us to the next one. They were obsessed with their status. Verse 39 tells us that they loved the best seats in the synagogues or in the churches and the seats of honor at feasts. The best seats were always reserved for the most important people. And they loved having those best seats. They loved being put in the seat that was the most important spot. And when somebody else was put in that seat that was the most important spot, their hearts were full of jealousy and bitterness. And James tells us that where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile deed. So it's no wonder that immediately following that, Jesus exposes their evil deeds. He exposes the sin um, that their faulty beliefs led to. First, he says they exploited widows, exploited widows' houses, the devoured widows' houses. Basically, he tells us that in verse 40. That means that the scribes basically extorted widows. Instead of caring for and loving and humbly serving the elderly, they would go visit them and exposit some scripture for them for a large sum of money. They just extorted widows. That's selfish and sinful. They stole from the elderly. Then he says they prayed show-off prayers. He says, for a pretense, that means for a show, they make long prayers. They would love to make sure that they were seen, they were standing in the marketplace, and they would, and they would love to make sure they were heard by others, praying these long prayers. They'd pray for a long time, pre- pretending that they just loved God, really, and they only loved themselves. So if you pray short prayers, you're in good company. You're having a hard, hard time praying for a long time, like just envy those people that can pray for a long time. If you pray short prayers, you're in good company. God doesn't care how long your prayers are. God doesn't care if you can parse a Greek verb in your prayers. 
God wants you to commune with him because you love him. And if you're praying out loud, God wants you to pray out loud in front of people because you love him, not so that other people will love you. Um, One of the church fathers said... uh, Yay, yay. One of the church fathers said of this, of, this, of this actions, of these actions that flowed from their faulty beliefs about Jesus, he says this, while devoting great care to the things which were external, they overlooked those which bore upon the salvation of the soul. So while being focused on these things that were just temporal and external appearances, being obsessed with those things, they completely overlooked the eternal inner workings of the soul that would have led to their salvation. The scribes should have been zealous to see all people praising God as they're teaching scripture, expounding scripture. They should have been zealous about seeing all people praising God. But instead, they pretended to praise God in front of people so that people would praise them. They focused like I said, on the temporary external appearances, and they neglected their souls. So Jesus closes this section with the words, they will receive greater condemnation. And those should be just some sobering, scary words. Like, what a terrifying thing to hear Jesus himself say, they will receive greater condemnation than the atheist who's never heard the name of Jesus. The scribes' actions... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. As the most educated, the reason they'll receive the greater condemnation is because they were the most educated and skilled and respected of all the religious leaders. As I said, they were the ones who could teach Scripture. They knew it, yet they did not know the Christ. And therefore, they failed to teach it truthfully and accurately. They failed to serve the people of God humbly. And because of this, Jesus pronounces this severe condemnation on them. Another commentator says this, sin disguised with a show of godliness is double sin and its condemnation will be double heavy. The condemnation of religious hypocrites will be a condemnation above all others. Again, just some sobering thoughts, words for us to hear in the Bible Belt today. So the scribes' actions revealed that their hearts were really, what they really believed about the Christ. Their lifestyles revealed what they believed about Jesus. And it makes sense when you think about it, right? Our actions flow from what we believe in our heart to be true about Jesus. So the question for us is, what about us? What do our actions reveal that our hearts believe about the Christ? Who is the Christ to you? I think we have a couple of options. Is he simply the person who's supposed to save you from hell? Is that who the Christ is to you? Is he simply someone you call on when you need something? That was me. Lord, get me out of jail. Lord, get me out of this toxic relationship. Lord, get me out of all these things. Like, you're here to meet my needs. Is he someone you expect to honor you and praise you and serve you or make you healthy, wealthy, and successful? Do you believe he's a means to an end for you? Do you use his name to get the praise of men? Is he someone you believe is coming to honor you for your religious deeds? If this, is, this is, if this is what you're believing, if you look in your heart and you're saying, yeah, actually, that's what I'm believing about Jesus, then your life will show it. In this life, you'll seek to protect your own image. 
You'll be obsessed with building your own popularity and your own status. And also, because you don't really know the Christ, you'll be enslaved to your sin. And so naturally, you'll be about self-preservation and you'll sin against others. Just as the scribes did, just as the scribes did, all the while professing the name Christian. We can be guilty of that. It's a selfish hypocrisy. And if this is you, if this is the lies that you're believing in your heart about Jesus, then you have no right to assume that you are one of God's children. You are, in fact, building up a greater condemnation for yourself. And the answer to that is to repent and believe in the Christ, the sovereign Savior, and embrace him as your Lord and Savior of your life. You're not too too far gone for Jesus to save. Or is Jesus both your Lord and Savior? Do you know the Christ? Do you know Jesus as the sovereign Savior? And do you love him and worship him as such? If this is you, praise God. Respond to this passage with joyful worship. Like look at verse 37. It says, the crowd, the great throng that heard him, they heard him gladly. The scribes likely did not receive this gladly. But the people loved it, and they responded with worship. This is, you're clearly telling us who the Christ is. So if that's you, then respond with joyful worship. So brothers and sisters, uh, friends in the room, make sure that you know who the Christ is. Make sure you know the Christ. Go to the Bible to know more about him. That's what Jesus did. Make sure that you get the answer to that question right. Make sure you have the truth about Jesus and his identity and who he is deep within your soul because your life will show it. Your actions will flow out of what you believe in your heart to be true about Jesus. Let's pray.